Thank you, Pam. My name is Maxine, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. If y'all are drunk, I'm in the wrong place. You are the best-looking, cleaned-up bunch of alcoholics I have ever seen. And that is not my picture of an alcoholic. Y'all supposed to be dirty, uneducated, winos, sleeping on the bridges. I had a very precious friend in this fellowship named Max. He was from Route 1 Aircrew, Mississippi. And he used to say, Honey, if you don't tell them where you come from, they ain't gonna never know where you've been. So tonight, I want to try to tell you where I come from, where I've been, and let you know a little about where I am now. I am so delighted to be here. I'm so flattered that you invited me to this marvelous conference in Maryland. I think that your theme, Oceans of Love and Service, fits our fellowship right down to the T. I want to especially thank the committee for inviting me. And I want to tell you that when my Richie and I drove up to the hotel, and he and the bellboy came out after our luggage, and the bellboy had this gorgeous basket of fruit, I thought, well, this is it. They have the wrong car. It has to be for somebody else. I'd like to know if Doris is here. Please stand. This is the lady who did the lovely fruit arrangements for the speakers. Thank you so much, and I want to thank the Maryland General Service Convention Committee for remembering me and the other speakers in such a lovely way. In Virginia Beach, last February, I was privileged to be there as a guest, and I met a very precious couple from Baltimore. And right after I got the call inviting me to come to this convention, a few weeks later I had a call from Ed and Jan, and Ed said, you know, somebody came up to me and asked me if I'd be a chaperone to somebody at that convention, and I told him, heck no, I didn't be a chaperone. And he said, well, it's going to be for a lady. And he said, well, now that's different, let me think about it. And he said, just who is it? And they told him Maxine. And Ed said, yes, he and Jan would love to be mine and Richie's host and hostess for this weekend. And they have done a fabulous job of making us feel warm and welcome and loved. And I thank you. And I love you. And one more person I want to thank before I start into my story is the one who sits out there and gives me support all the way through. He and I haven't been together an awfully long time, and yet we've known each other forever. He's my best friend, my lover, and my husband. Ricky, would you stand? Thank you, dear. I grew up in a typical southern 
Southern Baptist home. I cannot attribute any of my illness, the disease of alcoholism, to hereditary or environmental conditions because there was no booze in our house. My mother and daddy were devout Christians. And you know, Ricky and I have a very precious friend in Coleman, Alabama, Father Hillary, who says that he has heard so many alcoholics stand at the podium and say they came from good Christian homes that he's about to decide that ain't no place to bring up children anymore. <laughs> I did come from that typical Christian home, and I grew up with a lot of inferiority complexes. I, you know, we alcoholics seem to be overloaded with them. But to begin with, I am short. I'm just five feet tall. Now, in case you don't know it, I've got about a four-foot box that I'm standing on. And I have on three inches of heels. So you see, if I stand on the floor off of this box, you're going to be looking at the podium. That was me. So I picked up a lot of nicknames when I was growing up. Nicknames like Peanut and Runt and Half Pint and Little Bit and Shorty, and I didn't like them. I always wanted to be tall and sophisticated and blonde and pretty. And I ended up black-haired and little and ruddy and dumpy and not pretty. And I wanted to be part of the crowd, with the crowd. I'm an only child, and for a long, long time I was a lonely child. And I have something else that contributed even more to my inferiority complex, and that's a pug nose. Now, my mother began teaching me at a very early age, I think right after they swatted me on the rear when I was born, always be a lady. Now, this got into my way of being an alcoholic for a long time. Ladies don't become alcoholics. But my mother would tell me, always behave like a lady and you will be treated like a lady. And she always said, ladies never blow their noses in public. If your nose is running, you take out a handkerchief and you pat it very gently. Now, that never did do a thing for me. That's all that ever got it. And I still have to get my nose like that every now and then, and that pugged it some more. So I got some more nicknames, like flat face and bulldog and pug. And that didn't make me feel tall and sophisticated and pretty. I graduated from high school with honors and went on to an all-girls college. My mother and daddy would have never heard of me going to a co-educational school. Ladies didn't go to co-educational school. But there was a brother college just down the road about 27 miles. And they had dances, and I was dating a young man from my hometown. And I was invited to a Kappa Alpha fraternity party one weekend. And I like to dance. I always have and I still do. And you know, I was introduced to Old Demon Rum that weekend for the first time in my life. I had my first taste of alcohol. I learned how the KAs earned their nicknames, Knights of Alcohol. We danced a while and we had a cup of punch and it was just punch. And we danced a while longer and went back to get another cup and somebody had added something to the punch bowl and it wasn't fruit juice. 
And that second cup of punch, which had been spiked, did something to me. I started growing. I got taller. I felt a little sophisticated. I felt a little pretty, and I even felt a little bit blonde. I didn't get drunk that first time, nor the next, but I found that that warm glow that I had inside, that loosening of my inside, was just what I needed to make me feel part of. And that's what I wanted to be, part of. I was a better dancer. I was a better conversationalist. I was a better date. Oh, I behaved myself. My mama told me to always be good. Well... When World War II was over, this young man and I were married. And we went back to a small town in North Mississippi and began our lives together. And we stepped into a ready-made life with a lot of ready-made things. His father went into retirement, and we stepped into a lot of businesses and a lot of money. We owned a chain of movie theaters, a dry cleaners, a big farm on the outskirts of town, real estate, duplexes built a beautiful home. We had everything that any two people could have wanted. And yet, there was a void within me that I could never seem to fill. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to feel loved. I wanted to care. I thought I did care. And yet, I always felt that I was on the sidelines unless I had a cocktail or two. Now, we entertained a lot. And we drank a lot together. You know, I have no earthly idea when I crossed that invisible line. And as Roy said last night, it really doesn't matter. I crossed it. The terrible part is for so many of us that we have to suffer for so long before we can admit we've crossed that line. And I did suffer for a long time. You know, I began drinking with parties, at parties. I began drinking as we entertained. The time came when I would be mixing the martinis and I'd belt a few on the side, you know, and then pass them around and have one too that I could sip on. And I wouldn't remember when the guest went home. Now, this is a peculiar feeling to wake up the next morning and for half the evening to be a total blank and you wonder if you've made a fool of yourself. So the thing to do is to find out in a very quiet way. So you go into the kitchen and you ask the cook who was there to serve the meal last evening, uh, Emily, how did things go? How did you think things went last night? Wasn't it a nice party? Oh, yes. It was just lovely. And I've never seen you looking prettier. Hmm, I must have done okay, but I don't remember it. Well, anyway, it was probably the fact that I just didn't feel well when the evening began. And I didn't eat very much either. And then the time came when I didn't remember when the guests arrived. <laughs> now, that's even worse, and you have to be very careful about asking about that. I knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism. I had never heard of such a thing as a blackout. And I had no earthly idea what was wrong with me. 
We had a son, a beautiful little boy who had polio when he was eight months old. We took him to Isolation Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and we were told to leave him there. And I went back home and drowned my sorrows in a bottle of good bourbon. When my arms ached to hold my child, I would drink more. When I couldn't sleep at night, I would get up and drink. And I am sure now that by the time my son got home from that hospital, I was a full-fledged alcoholic. I had gone downhill physically. I was still trying to meet my social obligations. Oh, and incidentally, I was the little social type, you know, played bridge three times a week, president of the garden club, went to flower show judge and sue, president of the woman's club. I did all the proper things. And nobody knew that I was drinking too much, I thought. Like so many of us, so many people know so much more than we do. I was going downhill physically, and I did have some physical illnesses. They thought I had a tumor on the brain. I went through all the excruciatingly painful tests, the air studies, the dye studies, and finally they said, well, they'd have to operate to see if there was a tumor. They didn't have the sophisticated machinery and equipment that they do now to pinpoint things like that. And so they did operate on my brain, my head, and the doctor came out and very nonchalantly said, we didn't find a thing. <laughs> I believe in now. I wasn't so sure about it then. A little girl was born to us, and I was still miserable. I had servants in my home. I had a nurse to take care of the children. I was doing everything that I was supposed to do, going to Sunday school and church on Sunday, but getting drunk on Saturday night, and usually on Sunday night, too. And then I started the rounds of the private sanatoriums. My nerves got very bad. Now, of course, it wasn't any drinking problem. Ladies don't become alcoholics. So when I would feel that I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown because I hadn't eaten in so long, and I wasn't able to sleep at night unless I drank an awful lot, I would go away to a sanatorium to try to get on my feet. And the doctors would do the usual things like giving me the drips and the vitamins. And it wasn't long after beginning this round of sanatoriums that I found that if you found the right attendant and handed them a $20 bill, they would bring a pint of whiskey to your room after the doctors left for the day. And so I learned how to drink in private sanatoriums. I went to one place in Jackson, Mississippi, on one occasion, and I had to be helped in. I was so nervous. <laughs> Three weeks later, I had to be carried out. My nerves hadn't gotten a bit better. I had had several major abdominal surgeries. I wasn't well physically, and I wasn't helping with any with the drinking. And I was a prime target for something besides alcohol. 
And you know, we have a lot of <clears throat> feeling about this in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've heard a lot of old-timers and newcomers and middle-agers say, if they've been in that pill scene, they don't have any business in this program. We have a pamphlet written by Bill Wilson concerning that. And he says if we're alcoholic, and alcohol is our main problem, AA is the place for us. If there is something else that is the main problem, then there are other fellowships to help us cope with our illnesses. And I want to say to you that everyone in here who never did anything but drink alcohol is lucky. You may not feel that way. But I got into something even harder than alcohol. I was already addicted to that drug, alcohol. And I was ready for something else. You see, the alcohol gave me oblivion. It took me away. It made me feel like something that I was not. And one afternoon, this husband and I were going across the street to see his mother. We were going to ask her to babysit for us to go to a football game. And I was sober. If only I had been drunk, I wouldn't have fallen down the front steps and braced myself for the fall. It had been raining, and our front terrace had a slick concrete finish, and as I started down the front steps, my feet slipped out from under me, and my back put across the bottom of the back, uh, edge of the bottom steps and it fractured my back. Now, I say if I had only been drunk, I wouldn't have braced myself, and I wouldn't have hurt my back. Have y'all ever seen a drunk brace himself when he's falling? I had never. But I was hurt, and I was taken to a little hospital there at home, and the doctor came in and did for me what any good doctor would do for a suffering patient, someone in extreme pain. He gave me a shot. And before he got out of the room, I knew I had something new, something different. I had had Demerol before, and all it ever did was make me sleep. And I didn't like that as far as comparing it to alcohol was concerned. The alcohol did more for this feeling in here. But this was something totally new. It lifted me up off the bed, and it made me float around the room, and I didn't care whether or not I ever came down. Where the alcohol made me feel like something that I was not, this made me not care. It didn't matter if I was a midget, if I was 15 feet tall, if my hair was short chartreuse, if I was 5 by 14, it didn't matter. Give me some more of this stuff. And I found that the name of the drug is Delauded. And I found, too, that in the private hospital, if you raise enough cane and make enough noise, they'll give you something to set you up for a while. And so I did just that. And they kept giving me this drug, and I kept floating around the room. And every time that start weighing off, I'd have another fit, and they'd give me another one. You know, this uh, business of being a con artist can happen even to a lady. And I'm a great one. I have to be careful about that even today. I got hooked on Delauded, and it was a miserable, miserable life. This doctor kept writing to me. I'd go back and give him the same song and dance. I found out later he had a problem, too. It wasn't too hard to get it from him. And one morning I decided I'd had enough of this. 
I haven't been out of this bed. I haven't attended to any of my wifely duties, my motherly duties. And heaven knows when, it's time to stop. And so I went into the bathroom and started to take a shower. And before I got out of that shower, I was shaking so hard I could barely reach for the towel. Cold sweat was pouring off me. And my stomach was in hard knots. I was in such terrible pain, cramping. I was in acute drug withdrawal and didn't even know it. And the answer to that is the same answer that we get when we come off that drunk and we're hurting. And we have the butterflies and the shakes and we're feeling for another bottle. Get some more of the same stuff that makes you hurt. I did. I got some more and I used it and the time came when I had to stop that because I don't eat when I drink. I didn't eat when I used drugs. And physically I go to the bottom in a hurry. And so I started the rounds of the hospitals and the sanatoriums for nerves again. My doctors had been giving me some sort of medication that I must have been allergic to. Now, this is my story to the new doctor. Uh, it was affecting my sleep, and it was making me so terribly nervous that I really felt that I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown, and I felt that I needed to be hospitalized. And I would get hospitalized because um, it was expensive. And I'd go to general hospitals, and I'd give them the same story. You know, those doctors must have laughed up their sleeves at me. But not a one once ever looked at me and said, Lady, you have a problem. It was always, we'll see what we can do. I got introduced to something else. I was in a small hospital in North Mississippi, not too far from my home. And I was trying to come off of the booze and the morphine. I had to switch from Delauded to morphine because Delauded was hard to get and I could usually talk my way out of the morphine with the doctor. And incidentally, I drank bootlegging days, too. Let me tell y'all, I had to work like heck to get here. I didn't walk down to any corner liquor store, jump in a taxi, and run right down the other block and get it. Sometimes I had to drive 25, 30 miles one way just to get to the bootleggers, and let me tell you, it's a low blow to get there and find he's out. And that happens, too. I see some heads shaking around here. Looks like to me, uh, Millie. <laughs> Somebody else has hit those bootleggers at the time when they were out, and that is Panic City. I went to this hospital for my nerves again. Y'all, I was the most nervous woman in this city for so many years at one of these But I was there being treated for my nerves, and the doctor had cut down my medication, and I was really hurting. And this little aide came in my room, same one that came in every morning, and, um, She'd always been telling me about how sorry her husband was and how many children she had and how little money she had to spend on them. And this old head started clicking. And I started wringing my hands and I said, um, Honey, here's $20. And why don't you buy your children something when you get off work this afternoon? And isn't there something in that medicine chest that y'all don't have to count from the sick changes? And she said, I'll see. And she left, and then just a little bit, she came back and reached in her uniform pocket, and she handed me a handful of red cat food. I see some heads shaking out there again, like you know what I'm talking about. 
Chuckanals, the barbiturate, yeah, barbiturates, whichever one you want to call it. I think it's the barbiturate, because uh, I'll tell you, if you have a few of them and you try to come off of them, you'll think of barbiturates. <coughs> so I bounced. When I couldn't get the alcohol, I hit the morphine. Or if I went on a prolonged drunk, I found out that I could take the morphine and come off the alcohol. And then I'd take the second halls to try to come off the morphine. And then when I couldn't get off the second halls, I'd find the supply and start drinking the whiskey again. That is a beautiful life. Something to look forward to every day. Which bootlegger was it that was out last week? Which way do I go tomorrow? Now, we had a bar in the den, but I had a problem about that because, you see, the man who was my husband at that time was also a heavy drinker. Whether he's an alcoholic or not, was, that's his decision and his problem. But uh, very often, I would go out to fix myself two or three straight ones, and they would be empty bottles there. He would have beaten me to them. And I found out that he was hitting the pills, and I'd hit a doctor and come home with a supply of pills for myself and get up the next morning, and I wouldn't have but two. And let me tell you, if you're hooked on pills, you don't ever just take two. Just like you don't take one measured jigger of whiskey when you're drinking seriously. I was still going to the places trying. I, I, I didn't know a thing in the world about Alcoholics Anonymous. And let me tell you this, being totally honest. If I had known, I wouldn't have gone. Because, you see, I thought y'all were really dirty, uneducated people. Winers. Not my class at all. I had no earthly idea that anybody who was anybody went to those things that they had, whatever they were. I went to a little hospital in Scotland, Mississippi. I was about to run out of sanatoriums and hospitals, too. Oh, at first of all, I tried the psychiatric route. Did any of y'all ever try that? I've been to one doctor and gone into his hospital so many times. He finally looked at me and said, Maxine, uh, there's a psychiatrist down in Jackson, and I think he really might be able to help your nerves. So I thought, well, you know, if I go in and put it to him the right way, Maybe he can do something for me. I wanted to stop. I wanted to find an answer, a magic solution. I wanted somebody to hand me a cure on a silver platter and say, here, take this and it'll all go away. So I went to this psychiatrist. And he started asking me a lot of questions and I really didn't want to answer him. But I told him a little bit. And he told me that I had the worst inferiority complex of anybody he'd ever seen. And that was just marvelous. That's just what I wanted to hear. And he said, I really think that you ought to be hospitalized and let me treat you for a week or two or maybe three. And I think maybe we can help you. So I checked in at the Baptist Hospital on the psychiatric ward in Jackson, Mississippi. And he began his treatment for me. And if any of you new people out there decide you want to go back out and try it again and try the psychiatric route, let me tell you what the first thing that they might do will be is shock it out of you. He began electric shock treatments on me. 
and they are not a lot of fun. Now, for the first one, they had to catch me. And if you think that I wasn't a cute sight, I weighed about 95 pounds, running down the hall with one of those little, you know, opening the back nightgowns, just to picking them up and putting them down, with about six nurses in behind me, just shagging out of that place hard as I could go. But they caught me, and they shocked me. And I thought, well, I've had enough of this. So the next morning when the doctor came in, I opened up and I really talked to him. And I told him I thought my own chair out of complex was just a whole lot better. And I felt like I could stand up and hold my own with most anybody. But I'd grown a whole lot since I'd been in there. And let me tell you, those uh, shot people stretch you out and hide. Well, I went home. And it wasn't long until I was drunk again. And I went back. I went back to the Baptist Hospital in Jackson for psychiatric ward 18 times in two years. Now, I had in some shock therapy, too. That's a cute one. But if you get just so low in the shock with that insulin that you're almost gone, and then you give, they give you a big jab of glucose to pull you out of it. Now, before I ever even started having hallucinations or anything like DTs, I woke up and there was a dragon sitting on the foot of my bed. One of those insulin dragons. And I knew that one for me. So I thought, well, this thing has got to come to a speaking hall. So when the doctor came in, I started telling him how much better I was and how I thought I could do without him. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I decided you're about the meanest woman in the state of Mississippi. And that did it. I said, well, Buster, if you think I'm going to spend two years around here financing your trips to psychiatric conventions and building new wings on your homes and buying you new Cadillacs for you to talk my means to that you are crazy. And I packed my clothes and went home and got drunk. I'd show him. I know he worried about it. I went to a little hospital in Scotland, Mississippi, and a friend of ours who was a surgeon practices there. And I went in and I started giving them to strings, Dr. Strange. My phone song and dance about my nerves, not being able to sleep. Then she said, Maxine, I'll put you in the hospital and try to withdraw you off the medicine you've been taking and get you sobered up if you want me to. I didn't like that. But you know, I was just about down to my last straw, so I went on in the hospital. And I stayed there for about five days, and then she was lowering my medication, and the husband was bringing medicine in, and I was increasing my medication. And then she would lower my medication, and when the medicine at home ran out, the husband would bring me a pint, and I would increase my whiskey in the hospital. And one afternoon, Dempsey walked into my room. He was a family friend, someone who really cared, and yet I thought this man despised me for the way he talked to me. And he looked at me and he said, Nancy, I want you to put your clothes on and go home, and I never want to see you again. You are a piece of wasted humanity. You are pouring yourself down a bottle and a needle, and you don't seem to care. He said, why don't you go to Lexington, Kentucky? And I said, what's there? He said, there is a federal hospital there that is just for the treatment of narcotic addicts, and it's the only place that I know that might hold a ray of hope for you. 
Well, I didn't like the way this was coming. This man was calling me a dope fiend. And I let him know that I was nobody's dope fiend, that I was a lady, had always been a lady. And I packed my clothes and went home and got drunk again. I heard about a place in South, by South Central Mississippi. Y'all have one in Maryland, and they got one in New Hampshire, and they got one in Massachusetts, and they have one in every state. They're called state hospitals. I heard they had a ward in this state that was set up just for the treatment of alcoholic and narcotic patients. And I investigated this place before I went down there. Because, you see, I wanted to make sure they didn't put me in with some mental patients. I knew that I didn't need any kind of that treatment. My mind was all right and I was not insane. I didn't do any of those insane things that I'd heard about crazy people doing. And I found that the mental patients were segregated from the alcoholic and narcotic patients. And so I signed myself in and went to the state hospital. Now, this wasn't so horrible the first time. Uh, the doctor told me after I had been there three weeks and was ready to go home. Oh, incidentally, I went there because my doctor at home had given me medication when I was ill. And when he stopped giving me the medication, I had felt funny. And this had made me not be able to sleep. And somebody said that I might have gotten a little bit hooked on this stuff. And he said, well, you probably were. And he asked me if I'd ever been in any hospital before for the treatment of any sort of drug addiction or alcoholism. And I said, no, indeed. And when I left there, he looked at me and said that he had the greatest hope for me that he had ever had for any patient he had ever treated. That the fact that I had never used drugs in any form before did not drink at home at all, and came straight down there for help. As soon as I felt that something was happening to me, gave him high hopes for me. Now, when I met him there on my eighth trip, he had changed his mind. <clears throat> Thank goodness he wasn't my ward doctor, but he was still there. I didn't like me. I hated me. I hated what I was doing. I didn't like me drunk and I didn't like me sober. I was missing everything in life. I was missing my children growing up. And they were at sweet tender ages of just beginning school and coming home with support cards. I didn't feel like a whole person. So I decided to end it all, and I took a razor blade and slit my wrist. And that didn't work. I just bled a little bit, and they sewed me up and gave me a shot of morphine. And so I let that one heal up real thoroughly, and I got real depressed again, and I thought, well, I'll just do that again. And so I slit my wrist again, and they gave me another shot of tetanus. <clears throat> I didn't slit my wrist anymore. I really didn't like me. I truly wanted to stop. And I thought finally maybe this place in Kentucky might hold a ray of hope for me. 
maybe it would. And so on a cold February day, I packed all of my pretty things. I'd been to Memphis. Oh, we went to Memphis to get drunk and to buy whiskey legally up there, and we'd load up the station wagon and come back home with it. And I had bought some pretty flat suits. We didn't wear pant suits in those days. They were flat suits. And I had bought me some new lingerie, and it was all real fancy and pretty, and I packed it up, and my mother and my uncle drove me to Lexington, Kentucky. And I had a lot of pills to take on the way, and a lot of whiskey to drink, and I stopped at a few liquor stores on the way and reinforced my supply. And when I got to the gate at the foot of the hill at that federal hospital in Lexington, I was taken into a little gatehouse. And a man in a tan uniform started going through my luggage. He went through my train case and he took out my comb, my brush, my toothbrush, and my bobby pins. And he left me in all that Charles the Ritz and the other stuff that was in there. And he said, this is all you can take in with you. He searched that carefully. And I said, where am I going to get my face when I can put it on? He said, it's a commissary. Now, this made pretty good sense, and I wasn't able to think too straight anyway. But I thought, well, you know, military installations have commissaries, and this is a federal place, so that's okay. And I had plenty of money, didn't have to worry about buying it. And he went through my luggage, and without taking anything out, he put a steel strap around it, and he said, I'm sorry, you can't take anything of that in with you. And I said, why not? He said, well, we don't have a dry cleaner here, and everything you have there is either nylon or it has to be dry cleaned, and your clothes have to be cotton and washable. So I was taken up the hill to a huge, cold building. I don't even remember telling my mother and my uncle goodbye. And the man who drove me up that hill in that station wagon went to the back door and pressed the buzzer, and a woman in a tan uniform opened the door and let me in. I went through a narrow corridor and I vaguely remembered that there were bars, big bars, from the floor to the ceiling on both sides. And there were faces peering through those bars at me. And I heard somebody say, hi baby, where you from, shy? And I thought, well, they speak some foreign language in here. I had a little Spanish in school, I'll have to brush up on it. I was taken into uh, another room, which was called the admission unit, and another lady in a tan uniform came out and told me to go with her. I followed her, and we went into a small area. There was a shower over in the corner, and she stood there, affording me no modesty, and said, Strip, take your hair down, take a shower. She handed me a little can of powder, and she said, When you get out, put some of this everywhere. I did, the best I could. She handed me, and when I got out of the shower, she handed me a little fat nightgown and a wraparound robe which wrapped around about three times. As I said, I hadn't eaten, and I was skinny. And she said, come with me, and she led me down another corridor into a small room where a photographer was set up. Now, he undoubtedly was accustomed to working with people in my condition because he didn't have a chair. There was a board that was slanted back, and he leaned me back on that slanted board and put the number 60533 across my chest. I was in a federal penitentiary, and this was the first time I knew it. 
I found very soon that the majority of the patients here were prisoners, and they were doing anywhere from two to 25 years for drug offenses. I was taken into a room and asked a lot of questions. The man asked me if I drank, and I said no. He asked me if I used drugs habitually, and I said no, I got hooked medically, that there was a doctor that got me started on drugs. He asked me if I had any drugs on my person or in any of my belongings, and I said they took everything away at the gate. He said, give me your money, you can have change, and I will go get you some cigarettes out of the machine. I'll put the money in your account, and you will draw a commissary book twice a week when you're able to. I was then taken upstairs to what was called the shooting gallery or the withdrawal unit. And I was so weak and so sick, I felt that I was going to die right there on the spot. And the room was full of women, all dressed in pajamas and robes and sprawled around. They didn't look sick. They were watching television, looked perfectly normal, and here I was dying and nobody cared. And I saw an ottoman at a woman's feet, and I walked over, and my mother always taught me to be polite, be a lady. And I looked at this woman, and I said, may I sit here, please? Is this your stool? And she said, put your skinny A if you want, on it if you want to, baby. It belongs to Sam, not to me. So I sat down on the stool. I found out that Sam was Uncle Sam, and everything there belonged to him. And most everybody there belonged to him because they were doing his time. I was finally taken down a narrow cart and shown into a little room about 7 by 12 feet where there was a low cot and a chair. And I was told that that was my room. And I looked around at the aide and I said, I am accustomed to having a hospital bed. I would like to know why I have a cot to sleep on. And she looked at me with no emotion whatsoever and said, Well, dearie, that's so you won't have so far to fall when you start having fits. You see, I told him that I had taken a few pills downstairs. I got up the next morning after a very sleepless night and staggered out to try to drink some juice. I was so deathly sick that I knew I couldn't eat. And I sat across the table from a young woman who was eating everything in sight. And she looked across at me between bites, and she said, What you do on the streets, baby, hustle? And I said, Yes. Well, you see, I was always hustling to get to my bootleg on time. I was always I, I was hustling to get to the doctor on time. I was hustling to get my children off the street. I thought they meant rushing. And I finally got the nerve to ask somebody else. I said, what is this they keep talking about hustling and turning tricks? And this lady said, that's prostitution, baby. And I went crying into the hospital chaplain, and I said, Reverend Shirley, I told one of those women that I'm a prostitute. And he said, well, Matthew, looks like you're going to have to join them here because you can't lift them. You're outnumbered. The majority of those women had to support their drug habits by stealing, which they called boosting or prostitution. Now, do you think this made me grateful? Mm, indeed not. I didn't have to stoop to that to get my drugs. I bought my drugs. 
course, I had met my first pusher in Whitfield, and I had bought a few illegal drugs, but that was just because I needed them. And I certainly would never do such a thing as become a prostitute. Hmm. My mother told me that was a mortal sin, and anyway, I just wasn't brought up that way. So, I had to learn the language of the penitentiary, and let me tell you, ladies, there are four-letter words floating around in those, those buildings that you nor I have ever thought of, let alone heard. I let those words ring off my ears and tried as best I could to ignore them. And I was finally moved into the next unit, which was called population, and I found here that everybody went to work. She didn't just sit around and daydream and drink coffee and have a good time. It was all penitentiary work, and you were there, or you were put in the hole, and the aides didn't know the volunteer patients from the prisoners. Everybody was treated alike. And when I was interviewed for a job, the social worker came out to talk to me, and I immediately let him know who I was and what kind of background I had. That I had a college background, and I wasn't just his ordinary run-of-the-mill junkie. That I was a medical addict. And he said, well, you know, uh, we don't put volunteer patients in the garment shop. We hold that place for prisoners because they earn good time there. And I said, well, I was a home economics major in college, open in the medical library. Now, that was more a position that was befitting uh, of my caliber. And so I said, I'll take you. If I sound like I was a snob, I'm sure I was. I didn't know anything about that word gratitude. I had to get to you before I learned about that. And so I went to that medical library, and do you know how I spent the majority of my time? Studying medical journals, reading up on symptoms of diseases. So I could fake them when I got out, and I got to be a master at some of them. After I went home, I had won down to perfection. There was a doctor in North Mississippi that I had convinced so totally that I had a terminal illness that he was writing for 100 half-brain morphine tablets a week for me until he found out that I wasn't dying and he stopped writing and then I thought I was going to die. And I went back to my first love, the bottle, and I drank. There's no point in my telling you about all the times that I went back to Whitfield. I stopped, that's the state hospital. I stopped counting after my night trip there. You know, several years back, I was invited to join a workshop on alcoholism and narcotic addiction, and we went from high schools to colleges throughout the state, helping the teachers to learn to be counselors in their schools. And Dr. Jesuit, who was when I was going to Whitfield, the administrator of the building. And that man took his finger in my face so many times and told me I was going to die drunk, that I'd never make it, that there was no way that I could come out of it. And I asked him on one of these trips, I said, Dr. Jake, just for my own satisfaction sometimes, would you look up my record and tell me how many times I was really at Whitfield? He said, not on your life, honey, I'd have to get you for back taxes. I went to Whitfield one time, and 
was pronounced dead on arrival. I had overdosed with morphine, secondals, and alcohol. God didn't mean for me to die. I woke up two days later in the hospital. And to show you how totally insane I was, when I woke up in that room and looked around and saw the oxygen tent and the tank and the stomach pump and all that paraphernalia, I thought, well, whoever was in here before me so was sick. And it was me. But you tell me some more Thank you. So as I said, there's no point in my telling you about all the places, because they're all alike. That thing called love had long since gone out of our house. Every time I went away and came back, I was drunk before I got home. I was drunk right after I got home, and I was drunk all the time I was at home. And I hurt, and I wanted to stop. And on that first trip to Lexington, I was briefly introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll tell you how brief it was. I was going through a day room one afternoon, and I saw a group of women over in a corner, and I stopped out of sheer curiosity. And I heard them as they were reading. I heard one woman say, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, I know now they were reading the 12 steps. But I got up and left. Who were these penitentiary people to be talking about my sanity? Why, well, I'd been to Whitfield a half a dozen times by then. They'd let me out every time. That ought to show them I was sane. As I said, that thing called love had long since gone out the window, gone into a bottle, into a pill, into a needle. There were fights. You know, I used to walk around and say that I was a meek, mild-tempered drunk who just got my whiskey and went to the bedroom and closed the door. That ain't the way it was at all. I am meaner than sin when I'm drunk. I've got a temper that won't quit. I used to say that my husband beat the tarnation out of me for nothing. Let me tell y'all, when I got honest about the whole thing, I asked for a lot of those beatings. And anybody that's just five feet tall and doesn't weigh a hundred pounds ought not to pick a fight with anybody. If you got any sense at all. We lost everything. Cars, businesses, house, boat, farm, there was nothing. Self-respect had long gone. I shot myself with a 38 pistol and that didn't even work. I was so drunk I didn't have sense enough to put it in my mouth and pull the trigger. I held it back, put my thumb in the trigger and pulled it and it hit me in the shoulder and blew me across the bedroom. If y'all want to make a quick trip across the bedroom sometime, try it with a 38. I didn't even get a shot of tetanus for that when they cauterized it and strapped me in bed all night. We were living in a, a house that my son inherited from his grandmother. He knew better than to leave it to us because everything else had been sold. Mortgage and mortgage and sold. We owed everybody. 
and in October of 1962, I woke up from nightmare after nightmare. I was hemorrhaging. I couldn't drink enough to pass out. There was no morphine. I couldn't take enough pills to die. I just got sicker and more miserable. And God gave me a moment of grace because all of a sudden I wanted to live. More than I had ever wanted anything in my life, I wanted to live and be a whole human being. And I called my mother, whom I had put in the street, not literally, but I'd asked her to leave. She got in the way of my conscience. And I asked her to help me get back to Lexington one last time, and she did. And that last trip was totally different from the first trip and the other five. The other four, I made five in all. Because when I went in, everybody knew me. I didn't have to impress anyone. One aide even told me, next thing we saved your room, we knew you'd be back if you made it. And when I got to that withdrawal unit, I was so desperately ill. I found out about those low beds and those hard floors. I was so sick, I stayed on the withdrawal unit 27 days, and in that time I had 24 alcoholic and barbiturate convulsions. I'm not supposed to have a brain. We are all miracles. Are you aware that you're a miracle? Are you aware that God has given you another chance? Oh, I am aware of it. So very aware and so very grateful that you will allow me to stand here and share this with you, to say to you that I am grateful that God has given me this chance. And when I went to population on that last trip, I had smoked up the $5 that I had when I got there, smoked it up on the withdrawal unit, and I was smoking Uncle Sam's Paul Malls. I'd swallowed my pride and gone to the desk and asked the nurse for one of their free cigarettes. And when I got to the population unit, I went in to see Dr. Emil Trellis. He had been the unit psychiatrist ever since I'd been going there. And I had begged him for therapy over and over, do something to help me, do something to show me the way. And he'd say, I wouldn't give you the time of day. And I'd say, but you do it for the prisoners. He said, yes, I know, because the prisoners will be here and you'll be gone. Just as soon as you get on your feet, you'll go AMA, and that's not American Medical Association. That's against medical advice, and that's what I did. And I said, but I'm serious. This time I'm going to stay. I'm going to get a divorce, move away, start a new life. I have got to live. And he looked at me and he said, Maxine, if you are really serious about this, if you really mean what you're saying, then leave whatever money comes into your account on the books. Don't draw out a commissary book. And I said, what will I do for my commissary? He said, take in washing and ironing like the rest of these women who don't have any money. And he ought not to said that to me. You know, we've all got some pride left. I don't care how low we get down on that totem pole. Mine ran all the way up my back and bristled up to my full five feet. And I stood up and looked up at that six foot four man and I told him right where I wanted him to go. And I never mentioned heaven. And I started downstairs, and I was so weak and so ill. 
that I sank down in a chair in the day room and you were there. I didn't stop to be with you. I didn't stop for help. I didn't know there was help there. I stopped because I was too sick to walk any further. And I heard some voices say in unison, God grant me the serenity. And that's all I heard. That's all I heard. I didn't hear the rest of that beautiful prayer. That was what I wanted. Some serenity. I wanted to be still. To stop running. To stop being afraid. To have something or someone to hold on to. And I had nothing. And I sat there for the rest of that meeting. And I'm sure I didn't hear another thing. And I went downstairs to first floor to my little 7 by 12 foot cell and I lay across my bed. And for the first time, I'm sure in years, I prayed a sincere prayer. Oh, I'd prayed other prayers. Oh, God, let the doctor be there when I get there. Oh, God, don't let the bootlegger be closed when I get there. Oh, God, let him have a good supply when I get there. But this time, I prayed, God, help me. And if you're having trouble praying, that's all you need to say. Because that's the most sincere prayer we can pray. That's the prayer of surrender. That's the prayer that says, I can't do it any longer. I'm not able to try anymore. And the next Saturday when I went in to see Emil Trellis, I had three customers. I had swallowed my pride and walked up to one of those women, three of those women who had come off the withdrawal unit and asked them if I could do their laundry. And let me tell you, I had a rude awakening when I got to that laundry room. They didn't have any automatic washing machines in this place. They had the old-timey kind. Now, some of y'all had never seen one, but some of you might have used one. They're long and flat, and you put them in a tub, and you go up and down on them like that. And I didn't have any money to buy ivory soap or any of those hand-saving detergents from the commissary. Uncle Sam furnished our soap. It was yellow-powdered lime. It came in 50-gallon drums. And it scrubbed all the hide off of these bridge-playing hands. But I kept going back to those meetings because I heard something there that I wanted. That one word, serenity. And I began to hear a little bit more. And as I went to that laundry room every day or several times a week and rubbed elbows with those women from the streets, for the first time in my life I said, but for the grace of God, there go I. Because you see, I would have become a prostitute if I had kept going, if I hadn't died before I got there. I would have stolen more than I stole. You see, I justified my stealing. Why, I never walked in a department store or any kind of a store and just stole something. That was the way I looked at it when they talked about stealing. Now, the fact that I lifted a bottle of pills out of a doctor's bag when he wasn't looking was totally different. Or the fact that if a doctor wrote a prescription for 10 half-brain morphine tablets and I changed it to 40, that was totally different. I needed that. And that wasn't hurting anybody else. But I had to realize that I had stolen. 
I'd stolen much more. I had stolen happiness from my children. And I began to work this program, and I got the foundation of my Alcoholics Anonymous program in the penitentiary at Lexington. We tore the 12 steps up, and we put them back together. We didn't rewrite them, but we learned them. And when I left that place seven and a half months later, I was scared too totally to death. I went out in town. I didn't go back to Mississippi. Emil Trellis and Reverend Shirley had both said to me, don't go home until he gets out of town because all he's going to have to do is cook his finger or offer you a drink and you're going to be gone again. We don't think he's strong enough yet. And so I did. I went out into town and I spent the first night at the Y. And the first thing I did when I got there was ask them where the Alcoholics Anonymous group met in town. And they told me the token club. And it was within walking distance of the Y. And let me tell you, when I got to that meeting, I was so afraid of you. You see, I'd never been to a free world meeting before. I didn't know whether to open the door and walk in or turn and run because I came from the narcotic farm. And I was afraid you might say, you don't belong here. And if you had said that to me, I'm sure I would have died. I wouldn't have made it. But I opened the door, and I was met with oceans of love right there in Kentucky. I found immediate friendship, immediate fellowship, and love and warmth, just like I found it today, just like I see it right here in this audience. And I was lucky. I got a job, and I went right to work in a dress shop. Any of you ladies work in a dress shop? Let me tell you, it gave me a whole new outlook on the female shopper. I would stand and fold size 32 blouses and meat stacks and 34 blouses and meat stacks and 36 blouses and meat stacks, and here would come some cute little thing, and she'd start flipping. And I'd walk over and I'd say, may I help you? And she'd say, no thanks, honey, just looking. And out she'd go and I'd start folding 32 blouses and 34. Even today when I'm shopping, if I see anything folded neatly in a stack from a towel on up to anything else, if I want to look at it, I unfold it and look at it and then I fold it back very neatly and put it back in the stack. Because I know if I don't, some poor old tired-footed gal is going to have to do it when I'm gone. Now I would like to tell you that my program took, that I got well, that I did fine in Lexington and went back to Mississippi and uh, everything turned out roses and I lived happily ever after, but that ain't the way it was. You see, I admitted that I was alcoholic and my life was unmanageable, but I did not accept it. And I went to meetings, and I had a sponsor, and she kept saying, read the big book, don't take a drink, go to meetings, read the big book, don't take a drink, go to meetings. You know, I thought that was all she could say for about the first six weeks I knew her. And she was great, and I hadn't heard from my children in ages. And I hated the job in the dress shop, and I finally got a job working for a dentist. And I had to study hard. 
being a dental assistant. I'd never done this before. I had never worked before, but I was willing to learn. And I had to go home at night and pour over dental journals and try to learn these instruments and know my job. And I didn't have time to go to meetings. I didn't have time to read the big book. And one day I finally got a letter from my son and he said, Mama, aren't you ever coming home? Don't you even love us anymore? And I went out first class and caught a cab and drove to the first liquor store and bought me a pint and was drunk by the time I got back to my room. But thank goodness I called Ruth and she went to get me. And God love her soul, she worried with me all that day and most of the next day and then she looked at me and said, get up, take a bath, get dressed and let's go. And I said, where? She said, to a meeting. And I said, oh no, I have failed. She said, we're going. And she took me to that meeting, and let me tell you, it's the best meeting I have ever attended. Because when I walked in, not a soul said, look, she's been drunk. Did y'all know she didn't make it? Let's bow our head and have a word of prayer. I've been prayed over so much about this, but it's one I hadn't been sanctified. I was loved, I was cared about, and I was welcomed. And that's why it was the best meeting I've ever attended. It taught me that the only way I can fail this course is to die drunk. That's the only way I can fail it. Now, I can mess it up by not practicing these principles, by not getting the full benefits that this program offers to me in my daily life. But I went back to Eupora, and I expected everything to turn out beautifully. I thought my children would be waiting for me at the edge of town, but that's not the way it happened. My children turned and walked away. The courts didn't take them away. I ran them away through fear. My daughter was 13 years old and hadn't seen me sober long enough to really remember it. My son was a senior in high school and had dropped out of the high school and home. He was so ashamed of his parents our children were ashamed to go to school and afraid to come home. And he wouldn't even come home to see me. My mother took me in, that same mother I'd put in the street. And I'll always believe that mothers are akin to God because they have such forgiving hearts. My mother's still alive today, and God loves her. We have a marvelous relationship. Thanks to you, you've taught me to love her and to accept her love. And so I sat at my mother's house with no car and no money and no AA meeting. You know, I was the only drunk in Webster County, Mississippi for a long time. We got a meeting going there now. I found out that the, there were some other people who had problems just like I did. But I sat there day in and day out and I was wallowing in that same old club that so many of us allow ourselves to join. The PLOM club. Have any of y'all joined that one? Poor little old me. Look what I've done. Gone away and suffered and got sick and gotten well and nobody cares. And one night I went to my mother's bedroom door and knocked and I said, do you want to go with me or am I going to have to go by myself? And she said, don't. But she knew I was going and she went with me and I went to that bootlegger. And I bought that pint, and she drove back home, and I was drunk by the time we got to her house. I stayed drunk a week. 
miserably, stinking, dirty, self-pitying drunk. And I came to in a partial fog on a Sunday morning, and there was a host of relatives around my bed. And my mother looked at me. Uh, you know, you know they'd had one of those family meetings at my house, and they hadn't invited me. Now, if any of your families ever have a family meeting and you're not invited, you can pretty well bank on it that the meeting was about you. Because this meeting had been about me. And my mother looked at me and she said, don't you want to go to Whitfield? And I thought, oh no, not again. But she looked at me like, if you don't go, we're going to take you anywhere. And you know, they can do that too. So I said, yes, let's just let up, get up a load and go. And she did, and I was a load. And we got to Whitfield, and I went in on mental papers. First really honest thing I'd done in a long time. And when I got my head squared on enough to halfway think, I asked my mother to unpack my big book, which I had left packed, and send it to me. And it was in the state mental hospital that I accepted and admitted my step one. I know that I am an alcoholic, a drunk, a common, ordinary, garden-variety drunk. There's no such thing as a high bottom and a low bottom to me because it's our bottom that's inside that really counts. It's where we are here. It doesn't matter whether we go to the gutter or the cellar or the basement or stop on the third floor. It's where we are in here. And what better place to take step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore to sanity. Right there in the state hospital, and I did it. And I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. And I went back to Eupora, and I meant to get a divorce and get out of town, but God didn't plan it that way for me. He meant for me to pick up the pieces of my life right where I had scattered them and for me to put them back together. And so I got a job from strangers. Strangers took me in in my own hometown and gave me a chance. They were building a furniture factory and I went down and applied for work and they hired me to work in the office. I told them the truth all about myself, that I was a junkie, a drunk, but that I was trying one day at a time to make it. And they gave me that chance. And I borrowed my mother's car, and I went to work in it day after day. And I hurt for my children. But I had listened to that serenity prayer, and I was trying to accept the things that I could not change. And late one night, there was a knock on my mother's back door. And when I opened it, my son stood there. And he said, Mama, I need you. And, oh, I needed him. You gave me the courage to open that door, the door to my heart to my son. You gave me the love to share with him. You gave me the real acceptance of my boy as he was and as he is. He's a fine young man who's made me a proud grandma. And we have a marvelous relationship today. Thanks to you. Thanks to you. I had to wait longer for that little girl, but the day finally came around when she knocked on the door. And she stood there with those blue eyes shining, and she said, Mama, can I come in? 
and I let her all the way in. She's expecting her first child any moment. Any moment. What more could I ask on an evening like this to know that my daughter, who's not even supposed to have children, the doctors had told her it was next to impossible. She's going to have a baby any minute. And Richie and I are going. As soon as we leave here, we're heading for California. I got to hold that grandbaby. Well, I worked my program. I did the best I could. I worked hard. And you know, I kept praying, Lord, please send me somebody for love. I need somebody so desperately. But I have a hard time with prayer. You know, I think God answers prayer in mine in three ways. Yes, wait a while, and no. And I get the wait a while and no's mixed up a lot of times. And I kept waiting and I kept waiting and finally I said, well, okay, God, you're telling me no. So help me to accept my loneliness. And I, he was. I was contented. I had found a modicum of serenity. I had become active in the serenity retreat movement, which is conduct, they are conducted for addicts, I mean, for alcoholics and Al-Anons. And I had been going to these retreats for about three years, and in July of 1976, I went to a retreat, the annual one, in Coleman, Alabama. And that whole weekend was a series of coincidences. Now, I think that a coincidence is a small miracle performed by God when he prefers to remain anonymous. And you know, I had car trouble all the way to Coleman. It's about 180 miles from where I live. And I nursed that car all the way from Newport to Coleman. I poured water on it. It was running hot. I did everything but lose my temper. Now, I did fine on that. I never did kick it and call it what it was. And I got there and I missed dinner and I was hot and tired and I had a girlfriend with me and as I walked in the door, my dear precious friend and sponsor, Tom P. from Moulton, Alabama, was standing there waiting for me and he said, Maxine, I want you to meet Colonel Clark. And I said, how do you do? And just kept stepping. Well, we had missed dinner and after the first meeting, one of the brothers at the Abbey asked us if we would like to go to the grotto shop and have a sandwich, and we did. And uh, this colonel came, came uh, trailing along, and we got up there and we started sort of talking, a whole bunch of us, there were several of us there. And we went on back to the dormitory then and went, oh, incidentally, he had asked me for my address. He said he might want to look me up. So I gave him my business card. I was an office manager by this time. God had been very good to me. And... Um, he put the card in his pocket, and I thought, well, if he comes through you, Paula, he might want to stop and have a cup of coffee. I have a lot of friends that do that. <clears throat> so we went on back to the dormitory, and the next morning, when Bernice and I got up and got out in the hall, ready to go to breakfast, here he stood, and he said, uh, would you ladies like to ride to breakfast? And we said, yeah. So on the way to breakfast, he looked around at me, and he said, uh, did your husband not come with you? And I said, I don't have one. So we got on to breakfast, and we ate, and on the way back, I looked at him, and I said, uh, is your wife in the fellowship? And he said, I don't have one. And I said, uh-oh, God, to myself. Now, there were a lot of coincidences that weekend. Father Frederick Lawrence conducts these retreats. And on Saturday night, we have an open forum and a speaker. And this gal from Kentucky was standing there just talking her heart out. 
and uh, the lights went out all over the campus. Now, by this time, Richie and I had been writing some notes to each other in our notebook that we were supposed to be taking notes on the retreat about. And um, we had been talking at meal times and in between conferences, and uh, there was a lot of electricity going there. And the lights went out, and I put my hand up in front of my face just to see if it was so dark that I couldn't see my hand before my face. And when I put my hand back down, somebody squeezed it. And I squeezed back. And then somebody kissed me, and it wasn't Father Fred. Richie and I met on Friday, he kissed me on Saturday, he proposed on Tuesday, and we married on Wednesday. How's that for quick work? <laughs> Thank you. I know there were a lot of people who said they'll be drunk before Christmas. They'll never make it. Two drunks getting together that quick, they don't even know what's going on. But I got news for all of them. Richie and I took a fourth and fifth step together before we got married. We had enough time to do that. And we're happy. Now, I've got to tell you this quickly. About a year and a half after we were married, I have a little more sobriety than Richie. My birthday, my anniversary date, is September the 29th, 1963. And Richie didn't have that much sobriety when we were married. And I thought, well, this is great. God has answered every prayer about a man. He's intelligent. He's brilliant. He's good-looking. He's sober in AA. I didn't care about him being looking good-looking, but you know, God just gave me, gives me all these friends' benefits. I find when I behave myself, he really overloads me sometimes. So... After about a year and a half, I started taking Richie's inventory. You know, he wasn't working his program right at all. Now, I had been around a lot longer than he had, and if he would just listen to me and do things like I told him to, then he would get a whole lot better quicker. And I got real upset with him one day, and I called my sponsor. And I said, Lucille, I'll just tell you I don't know what I'm going to do about Richie. She said, Maxine, get yourself to Al-Anon. And I said, what? She said, get yourself to Al-Anon. I said, I am an alcoholic. She said, you are living with an alcoholic. Get yourself to Al-Anon. So I went, and I would like to tell you, good Al-Anon ladies, that I graduated in a hurry. You see, I already knew all about your program. I knew your 12 steps. I had taken the fourth step. I, didn't, I heard all about your problems and what you had had to go through living with your drunk husband. Well, I didn't have to live with a drunk husband. I'd never lived with... This one drunk. So um, I stopped going. You see, I graduated. And in about six months, I began Richie's inventory again. And I called Lucille, and she said, Are you still going to Al-Anon? And I said, uh, No, I didn't need it. I already know all that stuff. She said, Go back and listen. And I went back. And I am so grateful to you beautiful Al-Anon ladies. Thank you for teaching me so much. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Because I've learned to get off of Richie's back, and he has a beautiful program. He doesn't need a darn bit of help from me. We share, and we care. But he works his program, and I work mine. And I go to Al-Anon one night a week, and I dearly love it. And incidentally, Richie started going to Al-Anon, too. <clears throat> 
Now, I've got to tell you one thing, because if I don't tell you this, Richie's going to kill me when I get out of here, and i got to get to California to see that baby before I die. Now, I was having everything just great. If any of y'all are having trouble with getting honest with yourself or remembering, pray for a bull gamble. Bull Gamble is a highway patrolman who has been living in my hometown since Christ was here. In other words, he knew me when. And you know, I was thoroughly convinced. I I have a lot of brain damage and I know it. But I truly, y'all, I had gotten as honest as I was capable of being. And I truly believe that I didn't do a lot of things that I heard other people talk about doing, people in this fellowship. And I had a girlfriend who talked about being a running drunk and how many jails she got in. I said, well, I never did get in jail. Of course, at home, they didn't put Walford in jail. They took us home. And uh, I said, I got my booze, and I closed the drapes, and I went to bed, and I drank, and I let everybody else alone. And that's great. And Norma said, well, I, I was a running drunk. And I said, well, I wasn't. I was a pretty quiet drunk. So I got some beatings and I had some beatings. And I was honest about that. One morning, I was going to the post office, to my office. As I was going up the steps, Bull Gamble was coming down. Now, Bull, his name fits him perfectly. He's about six feet tall, and he is built like a fullback for the Rams. And he lifts when he talks. And as I was going up the steps, Bull was coming down, and he said, Good morning, Maxine. It sure is nice to see you with your clothes on this morning. <laughs> if you think that won't bring you to a screeching halt early on a Monday morning, let me tell you, it will. And I stopped and turned around, and I said, What did you say? He said, now, Maxine, don't tell me you don't remember all those times I had to take you in out of the rain when you was running all over the neighborhood in your nightgown. And then I began to remember. I did. I wasn't a lady. He said, don't you remember there's one night there it was just a slow, misty rain and I was cruising down the highway and just about the time I got in front of your house, you was across the street and you was behind an old oak tree and I saw this white form come around that tree, and I stopped, and I thought, oh, don't tell me that's that thing. <laughs> and he said, I pulled the patrol car up, and he said, when I'd back up, you'd come to this side. And he said, you know, we see thought around that tree for about 30 minutes. And he said, finally, I pulled over to the curb, and I said, yeah, that's that thing. And I walked over there, and he said, I got you by the elbow, and I said, where are you going? And you said, I'm going to the drive-in. I got to get a bottle. And I said, well, if you'll just go home and stay in the house, I'll go get your bottle for you. And I remember Bull took me across the street and saw me in the house and left. And I don't remember whether he got back with the bottle or not, but I remember that. So, okay, I have that all down. I am a common, ordinary garden variety drunk. I got to get honest. I did run all over the neighborhood in the nightgown. I wasn't a lady. I'm ashamed and had it all squared away. Norma came over to the house one afternoon. She said, Maxine, I got a problem with my driver's license. Let's go over and see Bull for a few minutes and let me see if he can help. So we go over to Bull's and he was coming out of his driveway in the patrol car and we stopped and we crawled in the back of the patrol car and Norma talked to him about her driver's license and about that time he turned around and looked at me and he said, Say, have you been in any transport trucks lately? 
<clears throat> and he saw the look on my face and he said, now don't tell me you forgot that one. And then I began to remember. Oh, he can jog your memory. I came out of the house one afternoon and I was so drunk I couldn't hit the floor with my hat, but I needed a drink. You don't, you don't ever get like that, any of you. You know, you just can't hardly hold anymore, but you've got to have another drink. And the husband, he's my ex-husband now, was sitting out there on the terrace with his feet propped up on that wrought iron railing, and he was about three feet in the wind, too. And I walked out and I said, uh, we're out in here. Every bottle is dusty inside. And he sa I said, you got to go to the drive-in and pick us up a bottle or two. And he said, there's not anything at the drive-in. Well, I knew he was lying. He always had a stash out there. I said, well, give me the car keys and I'll go look. He said, there's nothing at the drive-in. Anyway, you're in no condition to drive. Now, don't ever say that to a drunk. And I thought, well, I'll show you, Buster. So I went right down the sidewalk, and incidentally, we had a winding sidewalk. We must have known that I was going to have a problem when we built that house. Because I could be drunker than a bile owl and go down that sidewalk and never get on the grass. Just went to the corner and was saying, oh, incidentally, I was dressed. It wasn't raining. Went to the corner, and I saw a transport truck coming. And I just put out my thumb, and he stopped. And I looked. Have any of y'all ever climbed up in the cab of a transport truck? The first step is six feet off the ground, and I'm not the five feet tall. Well, I finally got started, and I climbed, and I climbed, and I got up in that cab, and this guy started shifting gears. And he shifted about 25, 30 times, I think. And he glanced around at me, and he said, uh, where are you going, lady? And I said, I don't know where you're going. He said, I'm going to Dallas, Texas. I said, that's fine. I've always wanted to go to Dallas. Well, you know, they say if they can't smell us, they can't tell us. And about that time, I, he must have been smelling because he began to look at me with this leery look on his face. And we were jogging along, heading out of town, got about four miles out, and I heard this siren. And I looked over in that long mirror, and there was that red light, that bubble gum going back in and had the red lights. It didn't have these blue ones. And I thought, uh-oh, it's full. And I tapped the guy, and I said, don't worry. He's not after you. He's after me. So he pulled over on the shoulder, and Bull came around, and I looked down on Bull Gamble. I have never felt so big in all my life. Old Bull had to look up at me, and he said, Maxine, come on down and let's go back home. I said, I will under two conditions. He said, I got one under the seat of the patrol car. What's the other one? I said, if you won't say a word to this poor man, I had to climb like heck to get up in this truck. So Bull helped me down. We got in the patrol car. I remember he reached under the seat. I don't remember whether he got a half a pint of... Anyway, I know I wasn't feeling any more pain by the time we got home. Bull Gamble's been good for me. 
I am grateful. I read my big book. I go to meetings and thank God I haven't taken a drink or any other mind-changing drug since September the 29th, 1963. I owe it all to God and to you. You see, I see God in you, and you have given me that faith, that belief in my higher power who is God, who has filled this void who keeps me from feeling that I'm on the outside or that I am alone, who makes me know that I am loved by my riches and by you, and that I am able to love you in return. We have another big book, and in that book there is a story about a man called Paul. And I love this man. He had a thorn in his flesh, and I've often wondered if he was alcoholic. And he wrote a letter one time to a church at Corinth that was troubled. And in this letter he talked about love. And I think that this is what our fellowship is all about. And he said in this letter, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have all knowledge and have faith to remove mountains, and have not love, I am nothing. And he said, though I give my body to be burned and all my goods to feed the poor and have not love, I'm nothing. And he ends by saying, and now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. A bell's not a bell, so you ring it. A song's not a song, so you sing it. Love wasn't put in your heart to stay. Because love isn't love, so you give it away. God bless you and thank you.